0: Welcome to Health Pulse Podcast. My name is Connor Delaney, CEO and President of Cleveland Clinic Florida. Today's episode is What You Need to Know About Colorectal Cancer. That's something I'm really passionate about as a colorectal surgeon. March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, a disease characterized by the unchecked division of cells which spread and cause problems for patients. When this type of growth happens in the colon or rectum, it's called colorectal cancer. The colon and rectum, along with the anus, make up our large intestines, which is the final part of your gastrointestinal tract. When we look at colorectal cancer, it's the second leading cause of death from cancer in the US for men and women combined. The difference about colorectal cancer is it can be detected and prevented because it can be picked up so early. Cleveland Clinic is here to help, and we're the only nationally ranked program in adult gastroenterology and GI surgery in South Florida. My special guest for today is Dr. Steven Wexner. Dr. Wexner is the director of the Digestive Disease Center and has responsibility for gastroenterology, colorectal surgery, and surgery at our Western campus. He's been on staff at Cleveland Clinic, Florida since 1988. And he's been the chairman of the Department of Colorectal Surgery since 19... Dr. Wexner was the first surgeon in North America to popularize the colonic J pouch, which is a type of reconstructive surgery we do for patients with rectal cancer. In fact, due to the study in which he participated and published, the procedure has now become an acceptable standard of care for patients with rectal cancer. The same is true with his innovations for fecal incontinence and his research around laparoscopy, minimally invasive surgery for colorectal cancer. Dr. Wexner has published more than 790 papers, more than 270 textbook chapters, and more than 144 editorials and invited commentaries. He's edited or co-edited 39 textbooks, and he's a member of 56 editorial boards as well as reviewing for many other journals. He's a member of 42 academic societies and has held many appointments and elected offices in these societies. In addition, he's now on the Board of Regents for the American College of Surgeons, and he's an honorary member member of many surgical societies in 10 countries, having visited many countries around the world and given more than 70 professorships and delivered more than 2000 scientific lectures. Dr. Wexner has received many national and international and regional awards for his research and clinical activities, and particularly germane to today's discussion. He was foundational in setting up the National Accreditation Program for Rectal Cancer, which is a program that helps make sure patients are getting the best correct experience at hospitals around the United States. As you can see, his experience is vast and remarkable. And this is really only a small glimpse of all the things he's done in his career. So I'm delighted to have you here today, Steve, and thank you very much for taking time to be with me. Thank you very much, Connor. It's truly an honor
1: to be here with you today. And I am very grateful to you for that wonderful introduction.
0: It's a pleasure. It's uh, lucky to call you a friend and a colleague. So it's really fun to talk to you about colorectal cancer. So, Steve, for patients who might be watching and listening to this, colorectal cancer begins in the colon or rectum, as I mentioned. And depending on where it starts, obviously, it can be called colon cancer or rectal cancer, which patients may hear as different terms. And we often group them together because the treatments are so aligned. Just for our patients, one in 23 men and one in 25 women will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer in their lifetime. So, Steve, it brings me to a first question to try and improve awareness for colorectal cancer awareness month. What are the symptoms that our patients should be looking for so they know when to be concerned and when to look for medical advice and care? Thanks very much, Connor. That's an excellent question.
1: Uh, Some people may have bleeding. They may notice some, some blood in the toilet. People may have some abdominal pain. Uh, other people may experience a change in bowel habits, which might entail a change in the frequency and or in the consistency. Uh, of their stool and some people also can have weight loss. There are other vague constitutional symptoms. Someone can have uh, if there's been enough blood loss. There may be a little lightheadedness or dizziness or palpitations with enough blood loss, but, but not everybody has
0: symptoms. So, another question is, is who can get colorectal cancer? Classically, we think about it for older patients but that's not really as true anymore. And we have concerns about younger patients getting it. What are, what are some of the trends with ages of diagnosis and who actually needs to be careful?
1: Everybody needs to be careful is, is, is the bottom line. Um, there are certain known risk factors, uh, but unfortunately nobody's really immune. Uh, and uh, you mentioned what the incidences in fact are between men and women. So everybody has to be on the lookout and everybody has to be concerned. Age is problematic because not every patient or even sadly physician necessarily associates some of the symptoms I mentioned, a bit of rectal bleeding, a bit of pains some change in bowel habits. Not everybody necessarily associates those symptoms with colorectal cancer. And unfortunately patients sometimes are treated for things like hemorrhoids when in fact it's a more insidious diagnosis than hemorrhoids particularly in younger patients. And we're seeing younger and younger patients with colorectal cancers, and that is definitely problematic. So people need to be on a lookout at a younger age.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think we've, we've both seen patients as young as teenagers present with this, and it's really sad when they, they have bleeding and they think it's hemorrhoids and it hasn't been checked out. So I, I think the highlight and the important part of that is that if you have symptoms and particularly if you're younger and have a symptom as simple as bleeding, get checked by your physician, get examined, and make sure that you're a candidate for a colonoscopy or other investigation. But Steve, familial risk is also a risk factor. Obviously, colorectal cancer can run in families, and that can heighten awareness. But what are your thoughts on familial colorectal cancer? A much
1: smaller segment of the population, but a very, very important one. Uh, so, in addition to everybody potentially being at risk, there's a, an uh, enhanced level of risk, a significantly higher risk in people who come from families where one or more first-degree relative has had a colorectal cancer, a mother, a father, a, a brother, a sister, a offspring, sometimes, uh, who've had a colorectal cancer. That group is clearly at higher risk, as are some other groups. Uh, for example, Patients with ulcerative colitis, patients with Crohn's disease, and and these patients are told that they have higher risks and and they're subject to more frequent investigations or should be subject to more frequent investigations uh, because of those risks. And and then there are some other groups where there's a a bit of an elevated risk, too. For example, somebody that prior prior X-ray treatment to the pelvis for something uh, might have a bit of a higher risk. Uh, for for cancer in the rectum and and again, those patients should be aware, but familial is absolutely a consideration.
0: So, the message is being, if you're in a family that has a history of colorectal cancer. Or cancer, or if you have symptoms, please get checked and get checked early. And we're going to talk a little bit more later on about screening and testing for people who don't have symptoms. So, Steve, somebody ends up getting a cancer. We'll talk a little bit about treatment in a moment, but just so patients have an understanding, what are the stages of colorectal cancer and the different kind of levels of advancement that that patients present with?
1: Well, definitely um, there are some similarities between colon and rectum, but there are also some significant differences. So, So broadly speaking, we look at the depth of the tumor through the wall of the bowel, whether the colon or the rectum, whether or not there are any lymph glands involved in the vicinity or further away, because the way the lymphatics drain from the wall of the intestine is, is from near the intestine to further away, and ultimately to the liver and, and, and lungs, which can be the site's unfortunate metastatic disease. So, so we look at the tumor itself, then we look at the nodes, and, and then we look for any metastatic disease. But there are certain other features too, which are uh, genetic, What's called molecular markers to let us know about some of the tumor characteristics Uh, and and some of those markers are more important in in the inherited colorectal cancer families. In addition, there are some characteristics under the microscope that the pathologist will tell us about how. Well, organized or how disorganized the tumor is and. What the tumor is doing to the local nerves and the local blood vessels, those things can also make a difference. So ultimately, with all of these things, we we can come up with a stage. 1 as being very localized all the way to stage 4, which is spread to somewhere like the liver or lungs. With then the little caveats of um, what's the status of the nerves and the differentiation of the tumor and, and such. But I alluded to the fact that the rectum is rather different than, than the colon, and, and, and for many reasons, because of the way the lymphatics and the blood vessels drain, because of the rectum's location in the bony pelvis. Um, there, there are some fundamental differences, the clearance that we as surgeons can get around a tumor, uh, the ability of adjacent tissues to be radiated. So there are some fundamental differences between tumors of the colon and
0: tumors of the rectum. Uh, right, absolutely. And that's very helpful. But so for patients then, so there's tumors that are localized to the colon or rectum. There's tumors that go to the lymph nodes. Uh, And for our patients that classically means you need chemotherapy after surgery. And then there are tumors that have metastasized or spread away from the colon to liver or lung. And that needs also chemotherapy, but then sometimes additional surgery to remove uh, the area that it's spread to. So, Steve, thinking about the tumor in the colon, and let's think colon just for a moment first. So, how is that surgically approached? Say somebody just has a tumor on the, the right side of their colon. So, obviously, the colon goes from the right side across the abdomen and down on the left side. So, say somebody had a tumor on the right side, what kind of surgical intervention would they need? That would
1: generally, in most hands, certainly here at, at Cleveland Clinic, Florida, be, be approached laparoscopically in a minimally invasive fashion. So, um, you mentioned I started here in 1988. In those days, it was an incision that went more or less from the breastbone to the pubic bone. Um, but thankfully, we advanced pretty rapidly, and, and uh, my late partner, David Jagelman, and I started doing these types of operations through little punctures. We started that. Uh, Approach back in 1991, removing the colon through little punctures. It's also referred to as keyhole surgery or minimally invasive surgery. Uh, and that limits the trauma for the patient. So we can achieve the same cancer operation, removing the, the colon in which the tumor is contained, removing all the lymphatics, uh, joining the two ends of the bowel together, which in this case is the the end of the small bowel, and what is now the new beginning of the colon, so, so the ileum to the transverse colon, all of that can be accomplished through punctures and, and a very small cut rather than, than through a big incision.
0: Yeah, it's, as, as you know, it just transforms recovery. So something that patients would be in hospital for seven to 10 days, 20 years ago now, often they go home the day after, or two days after surgery taking, something as simple as Tylenol for pain. It's really, it's transformed our our standards of surgical care. So so thinking about rectal cancer, you mentioned it's more complex. Obviously your rectum uh, for our patients is in your pelvis. It's the very last part of the GI tract. Um, And when tumors in the rectum spread locally, we often give different treatment before surgery. So some patients may need radiation or chemotherapy before surgery. Um, But then, Steve, maybe talk about the surgical reconstruction and the J-Pouch procedure um, that you published on so many years ago, and that's become part of the standard for care for reconstructive surgery.
1: Sure, I I, I will be happy to do that. I I just want to circle back to the last question for a moment and say that one of the things we learned from minimally invasive surgery is what you taught us and and you taught the world uh, as the pioneer in the United States of, of enhanced recovery after surgery protocols. So they go hand in hand. We get patients out so quickly uh, as we do today, not only because of what we do to them through their abdominal wall, but how we treat them before surgery with education, uh, and then after surgery with mobilization, getting up, walking, eating, and things that, that you pioneered with the enhanced recovery after surgery protocols that, that are now practiced throughout the country and throughout the world. Uh, so those, those techniques go hand in hand. And they're also employed with. Well, so minimal invasive surgery, enhanced recovery after surgery are, are partnered together. The surgery for the rectum is, is different, as, as I mentioned. Um, and part of the difference we need to think about to, to address your uh, point of colonic J pouches, part of what we need to address is that the rectum has a special function. Most of the colon is uh, really there to absorb water. to to decrease the amount of water that's going to be passed through the bottom and and make bowel movement solid rather than liquid and allow people to go less frequently than they otherwise would if that water hadn't been absorbed the rectum functions as a reservoir though that's different so now this uh, stool basically uh, from which most of the water has been withdrawn absorbed uh, in the wall of the colon on, on route to the rectum now the stool is there well people need to be able to defer going to the toilet till a socially acceptable time and place. Um, and that's the job of the rectum, to allow people to wait and, until such a time and place is, is uh, ideal. Well, when the rectum is removed and we try to make the colon act like the rectum, it generally doesn't. And people have a lot of problems with urgency, with frequency, with Multiple small bowel movements. Maybe they don't completely empty. They need to use enemas um, because the colon just doesn't stretch the way the rectum was. And I explain it to my patients. It's a bit like a balloon. That you know the rectum is supposed to enlarge and and then reduce in size, which it does. It's very elastic. So in an effort to try to recreate the native elastic reservoir of the rectum uh we started performing again in the late 80s uh with david jagelman again we started performing colonic j pouches basically what we do is we take the colon so if you can imagine instead of taking the colon straight on and attaching it to the bottom whatever's left of the rectum behind or the anus we'd fold it on itself like a letter j a- and that allows i turn my finger the right way a bigger reservoir so now maybe with this one you can see better so it becomes the, this gets joined together and we have a j That gives us a bigger reservoir. Now, that wasn't something we dreamt of. It it, it was initially introduced in France. Simultaneously, two different places in France. And that was a takeoff on a technique for the small bowel used for patients with other diseases, ulcerative colitis and and multiple clonic growths um, called a J-pouch that that started almost 10 years earlier in the UK and in um, Japan. So, we adapted it and we said, let's make a better reservoir and and people are still trying different approaches to get there. But the bottom line is. We try to give patients the best possible function and quality of life by trying as best we can to reproduce. The function of the native rectum after it's been removed for cancer.
0: It's a great explanation, I think, um, and. Obviously, recreating that reservoir allows us to save some patients who have rectal cancer from needing a permanent colostomy, which obviously uh, can be very helpful for patients. So that's why it's so important to see a really experienced colorectal surgical team uh, when you're being assessed for rectal cancer and indeed colon cancer. So, Steve, obviously, we hope that most patients who come to us, we can catch them before they have cancer. And that's something that we can do with the colon and rectum. And because many patients will get a polyp on the way to getting a cancer. So maybe you talk a little bit about screening. Some of the tests are available um, and how we can pick up and then remove these polyps. Yeah, this is an excellent
1: point. Screening is just so important, Um, particularly, again, if you have a family history, if you have symptoms, it's not even any more screening. But even asymptomatic and it's so important that the United States, uh, uh, health, the preventative service task force. Has recommended that the age of screening be lowered because more and more younger people are sadly developing and presenting with. Colorectal cancers, so options for screening uh, office based Flexible, sigmatoscopy, which allows us to look with a little flexible instrument through the bottom at the last roughly 25 inches of the bowel, which is only a portion of the colon and doesn't cover everything. So if that's the screening exam chosen, it needs to be supplemented with somehow looking at the stool either for blood or for markers uh, or, or you know, different, there are different tests available. There are basically three broad categories of tests that allow people to test the stool for various things in the stool to say whether or not uh, there's a a cancer there. Um, However, I personally believe that the gold standard is colonoscopy, where the patient cleanses the bowel uh, with a a cathartic, a laxative, and then a a small flexible instrument is put in while the patient is comfortably sedated, put in through the bottom to assess the entirety of the colon, looking at all of the lining. And unlike the other tests, the, the be called blood or the immunotests you know, test of the stool and the like, it's also potentially therapeutic in that small growths can be removed. Larger ones can be biopsied and only colonoscopy offers that opportunity. There is one other option, which is using a CAT scan machine for what's called CT colography, basically looking at the colon. But again, it, it doesn't allow removal of precancerous growths, it doesn't allow biopsy of potentially cancerous growths. So from my perspective, although there are options, I think the best option is a screening colonoscopy.
0: Yeah, I'd absolutely agree. So that's a great in-depth answer for patients. So to summarize patients, then there are the stool-based tests. The challenge with those is if they do come back positive and that you need another test done, And if they're negative, they're not 100% correct. But they're a a reasonably good kind of quick test. The best test is colonoscopy. It's the most accurate. It allows us to remove polyps, which may be causes of bleeding. But particularly, it allows us to remove polyps, which may later turn into cancer. So we now have good evidence that colonoscopy can prevent cancer. So, Steve, just as a recommendation for patients, then, what age should they start testing it?
1: well again this brings up the issue of whether or not there's a family history Um, so with a family history generally speaking 10 years younger than the youngest person in the family who had colorectal cancer is is a good idea so if let's say a patient had a, a parent who had a colon cancer at age 50 they would start at 40 just for argument's sake in the general population the screening age has has been recommended to have been lowered down to 50. Um, There are many of us who think it should be lower and I'm included in that number. I I really think that that we're gonna miss a lot of people between age 40 and 50, Um, but there are real world considerations uh, that patients have to face with with finances of, of colonoscopy and the like. So hopefully as we move forward, we're going to find uh, insurance companies and and Medicare more and more willing to allow us to screen patients in their 40s rather than having to wait into their 50s.
0: Yeah, I agree 50 is a good start off age and 45 looks like it's going to be better, but there's complexities around healthcare insurance companies and other things. But the important things are think about screening at the latest at 50, talk to your doctor before that Particularly as we talked about earlier, if you think you have any symptoms, get tested, see your doctor and do it early and find an experienced team to look after you. So Steve, thank you very much. So, you know, to summarize, I I think we have a phenomenal team and and perhaps uh, one of our strongest teams in this area in GI, GI surgery, colorectal surgery. You and indeed a number of the team have been listed as being best doctors in America and top doctors in the region. Steve, you're a fantastic physician and surgeon. Uh, appreciate speaking with you today and really appreciate all of the knowledge and expertise uh, that you shared uh, with our patients today.
1: Well, thank you very much, Connor. And uh, it's wonderful to to be with you. And uh, it's especially wonderful to be with you here in Florida now, as opposed to speaking uh, between Florida and Cleveland. We're delighted that you're our
0: CEO and president. Yeah, thank you, Steve. It's an honor and pleasure to be here. So to our listeners, Make sure to talk to your physician about what screening test is right for you. No matter which test you choose, the single most important thing is to get tested and be aware. Please visit visit clevelandclinic.org to schedule your next appointment and we'd be happy to help you with guidance around this. Thank you.